had no idea how many people would be here today, but regardless of how many people are here, we are few in number. When you start looking at uh, when you start looking at the world and the number of people, you look at even the people who could be here. There's lots of room for others to be here. We're always going to be few. In fact, Jesus Himself said that we would be few. That the way was straight and narrow, and few there are that will find it. And in Western society, it looks like it's becoming fewer and fewer. It's not so true in Eastern society, perhaps, but in Western society, it's particularly that way. And so, when you found out, that, when you have decided that you have come here this morning, you have done something bigger than you realize. You might not think of it. I, I know it, it suddenly hit me when I was kind of working through this lesson. I thought to myself. I don't care who we are, we can never understand what it's going to be like to, to, to realize that, that the fact that we were here, that we will remember this day our entire life. On the other side, we will be like downloaded with the way God's mind works and we'll know all kinds of things. And we, the fact that you chose to be here rather than at home doing something that would probably be relatively useless compared to being here, I mean, that is going to have profound meaning to you. And so welcome. We're so happy that you're here. And we're quite, so, we're quite sure that for eternity, we will be glad for this day that you chose to come and be a part of, of God's people and, and God's church. But so many have chosen not to do that in Western society. There is a, a, an author on the net who was writing about what happened in his country, Britain, in England, with the church in this country or Episcopalians in the United States. The Church of England is dying so quickly that he reckons that by, statistically by the year 2030, this, the Church of England, that the Queen is the head of, you'll know, in England, that the Church in England in, two, in 2030 will cease to exist if all things continue the way they are. But in the year 2030, because of the rapidity of the growth of the church in places like China, particularly China is what he's talking about, that by the year 2030, just when the Church of England will cease to exist, if all things continue as it is, then all the churches in China will be so large, they will be the largest Christian nation on the planet with 250 million, with 250 million million people. The Chinese government's waking up to the fact that when you allow people to become Christians in China, they don't beat you out of money, they don't try to overturn the government, they become model citizens and so on and so forth, and so suddenly you're finding out that more and more they're saying Christianity pays. Something Western society used to know. Christianity pays, but, but has somehow or another forgotten to important it really is to us. And you have chosen to be here and have chosen to stand up for the Lord Jesus the Christ. And that's what our lesson is about today, is about standing, to stand up for the Lord, to take a stand for Him, regardless of how few or how large we might happen to be that has nothing to do with it. You have to decide whether you're going to stand for Him or whether you're not going to stand for Him. We're not going to reread the text that was just read to you, but I want to point out to you that the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6 says basically the same thing in Ephesians chapter 6 as he does in Philippians chapter 1, the text that we'll really study today. But he says it in a much more picturesque way in Ephesians chapter 6, and that's why it probably sticks in your mind. 
Anything, that, anything that's picturesque means you can take that same text and draw a picture out of it. Kind of like the book of Revelation has all of these pictures, doesn't it? Well, you can just see the picture of that soldier that Jesus, or, or rather that Paul is talking about, that Roman soldier who was probably sitting outside of his jail, the jail cell right there. Paul is in jail in the book of Philippians, and as he writes the book of Ephesians and Philippians as well, he's writing this at the same period of time as he's sitting in there with that, with that officer, that, that uh, uh, soldier right outside, right outside his door. And so he can just almost look at him and, and, and say, this, this represents this and this represents that. Put on the whole armor of God that you may, may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. And he tells you the different things, truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, the word of God, and prayer. And all of that, I have used it, and probably all preachers have, have used that as, as a lesson plan because it lays out just so beautifully to be able to share with people how we need to make sure that we have each component part. But to be quite honest, it's a little flowery. It's a little flowery. When the Apostle Paul decides to write using the same thing, theme to people that he is really close to, he becomes exceedingly practical. I don't know how close he was to the Ephesians, but we do know he was terribly emotionally involved with the church in Philippi. They just loved him and cared for his needs constantly, and Paul couldn't even hardly think, even in jail, of them without being just, just saying, rejoice, and again I say rejoice the way he does in Philippians. He's just so happy to think about them. And so what he talks to them about is very personal. It's very concise. It does, it's not overly wordy in any way. He simply writes to them, telling them to stand also, he says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, he doesn't know for sure if he'll be able to get back and see them. Who knows how long the old man will live. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. It has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. We have signed up not for a cruise, we're not going on board a cruise ship, but on, on, on board a battleship. We are soldiers of Christ. We are at war. And we will always be that, regardless of which generation, whether it was 2,000 years ago in the days of Paul, or whether it's the present moment right here in Carmen, Manitoba. We are at war, and it's as serious as heaven and hell itself. That's how serious it is. As to whether or not we decide we're going to stand with Jesus or we decide that we are not going to stand with Jesus. It's not going to be an easy task to stand firm. We know that. Because you're going to say to yourself, how in the world can we do this? It's good enough for me to just tell you folks, just stand. And you know, that's what Paul's done. done. He just said, stand. Take a stand. But how in the world do you go about doing that? Well, the Apostle Paul tells you how to take that stand. He says, first of all, be consistent. Number two, be united. And number three, be bold. Those three things. The first thing he wants you to do then of the three things in our text today is to be consistent. 
And when he says be consistent, he means you've got to keep two things floating in your mind. You heard preachers talk talk about talk the talk and walk the walk. It's no good when you just talk the talk. I mean, that's easy for me. I talk all the time. Walking the walk, it becomes a lot harder. To try for me to get up here and give you these lofty words that come from God's Word is a lot, a whole lot easier than it is to live the life that's lofty, that represents those words. In fact, I don't think we can ever, I don't think anybody ever keeps up with their talk and their walking. But that doesn't mean that that's not what we're trying to do. We are trying to rid ourselves of the sin in our lives that keeps us from being what we ought to be so that we can be consistent, that we might be gospel people, but not just talk a good gospel, but live a good gospel. And that's what Paul says. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Do you get that? Your manner of life, that's your walk. Be worthy of the gospel. That's what your talk is when you talk the gospel. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm. How do you stand firm, Paul? He says, I just said it. I just told you how you stand firm. I'll hear that you're standing firm when I find out that you're walking and talking the gospel all the time, that people can not only hear you talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and how he died and graciously gave his life for you, but that it so profoundly affected you that when you leave that conversation, those people say, well, one thing I can say about him, since he started talking about this Jesus, he's been a better neighbor. He's been, he's, he really seems to be more gracious to me. And show more mercy to me in when he talks. And so when you do that, something wonderful and powerful happens. Now, I, you folks know that, my, that probably 16 years ago, too, he was still my hero, and he's my hero still yet. And it would be this gentleman right here. And uh, Brother Keeble was not blessed with a lot. He wasn't blessed with an education. He, was, he lost one eye. You'll remember, you can look up there and you can see one of them is false if you look real close. Had a finger missing. I don't know how that happened. He was not people's, he was not people's favorite color, shall we put it that way. That's maybe a rude way of putting it. But when you go back in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, and 60s in the southern United States, the Jim Crow laws, all of that garbage and everything, life was hard on a black man in those days who just wanted to stand up and be what God wanted him to be. Even the Klan made it rough on our brother, Marshall Keeble. And yet he was able during that era of time, and I'll admit it was a time when people listened to the Bible much more and listened to truth more than they do now. But in that era of time, he was able to baptize tens of thousands of people, white and black, who would come to those tent meetings. He would proclaim the gospel. In fact, he was on the way just before he died up to, to Weyburn, I believe, and Donna missed that meeting because he died before he made it there. He, he hold his road to the end, Brother Keeble did. Why was he so powerful, we ask, when, to be quite honest, he would, if he were here, he would tell you plainly that there was so much about God's word that he didn't understand. That he would run, he had certain people that he would run to that would help him to understand some of the deep, some of the topics that were difficult, like premillennialism versus amillennialism and, and, and all kinds of Calvinism. What does all of this mean? And, 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 but one thing he did have, and in his weakness became a strength. He debated men on one topic and one topic alone, and that was the gospel. And when he would do that, before the meeting was over sometimes, he would end up baptizing his opponent 
and the congregation of the people that the, of this man, this preacher, because they would know that he had gotten that right. And when you stick with the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died and was buried and was resurrected for you, that it was prophesied in the Old Testament, that it was preached by Peter on the day of Pentecost, and we need to practice that when we, when we die and are buried. I'm never going to get the baptistry in the right place. When we die and are buried and resurrected and we meet around the Lord's table, we're reminded of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. When that gospel becomes so focal in our lives, in the way we talk it and we walk it, that's how we change people's lives. For it is the gospel that's the power and the salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16. That's the dynamite, the dunamis in, in the Greek language. It's the, the dynamite that will take over the world. And when we, in, in sometimes in my preacher arrogance, want to show that I know something about you know, this topic and that topic with someone, I find out when the whole thing is over, oh no, I've done it again. I've sent someone away without the gospel of Jesus Christ when they don't even need anything of what I just said. Just wasted their time and, and, and my time in eternity. What we need to do is stand up for the gospel. We need to walk the walk of the gospel and talk the talk of the gospel. It's such a, a powerful thing. What shall we say, Paul says, to the Romans, to a church that was a mature church, of the most mature church probably in the ancient world, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. We died, we were buried, and we were resurrected to newness of life, born again, and our lives have never been the same. If that is your experience, that is the most powerful thing that we could ever have to stand up, stand up for Jesus. Nothing could be more powerful than just having that consistency of our walk and our talk going hand in hand with each other in a Marshall Keeble kind of way. Let me just mention to him one more time. All these televangelists, always you find out when the rest of the story comes out after they've died that these guys were practicing this or doing that and they cheated with this money or that money. That kind of thing happens with the televangelists all the time. Keeble, as much as our brotherhood focused on him, he remained a humble human being his entire life. Nobody ever questioned where the money went. Nobody ever questioned his morals in any way. No wonder tens of thousands of people were baptized because of Marshall Keeble, because of that consistency between his walk and his talk. Number two, if you really, the Apostle Paul says, if you really want to, to stand up for the Lord, if you want to be able to stand, we have to be united together, locking hands together, instead of just, uh, just letting anybody just run over us. We've got, we've got to take a stand. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm. How, Paul? How do you want us to be standing firm? He says, in one spirit, one mind. Keep that balance of truth and spirit that's always in the Bible. How to stand 
He says, I want to hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side. I want you to see the picture in your mind of what Paul is thinking of and what the Philippians would have been thinking of because they lived in a society where Roman soldiers were everywhere on the streets of Philippi. There was one out front that, was, that would have been making sure that Paul was staying in the right place and so on. And so they would be thinking of a Roman soldier and they would be thinking of Roman warfare when the Romans would line up and the enemy would line up against the other enemy, you would have two groups, one group going against the other group. And the name of the game is to make sure that you don't allow that other group to break through on, uh, on top of you and break, break in behind you. Can you imagine how awful it would be if you were a Roman soldier and you've had, you've had everyone lined up in Parthians whom they were, they were scared to death of because the Parthians were just, just killers. And let's say the Parthians went, went against Rome. And suddenly the Parthians broke through. They broke through our lines, and here we are, and there's some of them back there. How, how good is that going to go? That's not going to work real good. Now, I'm not very good with a sword this way, but I'm quite sure a sword trying to work this way is not going to work very good at all. And so all you have to do is when you get somebody, or you get your tanks like in World War II behind the enemy, you're shooting at his backside while he's trying to fight on his front side. There's no way in the world. You can win a situation like that. Even with the Romans, as simple as it was, all it would take is just a few guys coming down behind and just stab, 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 stab. And guess who they get? They get your best buddy who's right there and your best buddy who's right there. And the reason that they might have gotten him because, you know, like, like that little game Red Rover, Red Rover. Remember the way we used to play that? There'd be some big kid that was going to come through. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes I just broke and ran and kind of let the guy go through because, you know, he's going to make it anyway. Now, this is just a kid's game, and that works pretty good. But you know, the way they've got this guy here portrayed, he's a pretty bad guy. Watch it. See? He's, he's criminal because he broke through, and he's going to be a killer. When he gets there. Now, this is not a game. Whoever portrayed this on the net, I, I think, did a pretty good job because, because in the reality of life, when those guys break through on the other side, Satan is going to get you. And almost like Nehemiah, remember what Nehemiah had, had the people do when they were building a wall? He says, you build a wall in front of your house. That wall will be built good so the enemy doesn't break through and get your children and get you. So Nehemiah says, you build that part of the wall in front of your house. That's exactly what's going on right here. When you hold hands and you stand with God's people, when you decided, say, when you said, I'm going to go to church today, you said, that line will not be broken. The devil will not get past me and get my children. Not today, not on my watch. We're talking about something that you will remember forever. The very fact that even maybe on the one day that you, that you came, how much good you did. And sometimes the one day that if you could have been there because you invited that person there, they said, well, so-and-so invited me, but they're not there. How much bad that will do versus how much good. Whether you lock hands with God's people and forsake not the assembling of yourselves together, as the matter of some is, but in decide to encourage one another, it's not just some passage that preachers quote all the time. It's going to have profound meaning to you in eternity. Make sure that you are united with God's people because if you do not stand firm by being united with God's people, guess who's going to die eternally in hell? Those closest to you.
those closest to you. The ones that you the ones that you love the most, that you have the most profound effect, either for good or for evil, they will be the ones who will be affected by whether or not you decide to stand up, stand up for Jesus or not. Number three, be bold, the Apostle Paul says. Be bold. You, you, can you imagine some soldier going out on the, on the field, some Roman soldier, and he, instead of being bold, he says, boy, those guys are bigger than we are. Don't you think that they're going to kill us? Somebody's going to take him off on the side and says, let me explain this to you a little bit closer. And that's the end of this guy. I mean, it was pretty serious in the ancient world. You didn't talk like that. You discourage people. You've got this psychological warfare going on. If you start walking around talking about how we're going to be the losers and they're the winners, there's no way we can win. That's pretty dangerous stuff. And so the Apostle Paul told us to be, to be bold people. Do not be frightened. We're commanded that. This is an imperative. All these are imperatives. Imperatives meaning commanded, things that have to be done. Do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. This is theocratic war strategy and fighting against the enemy. This is psychological warfare. It's when we stand in front of people in such a way that they can tell that we've been with Jesus. That's what happened, of course, in Acts, the fourth chapter, in verse 13, is that Peter and John were standing before the Jewish Sanhedrin, and the Bible says that when they, the Jewish Sanhedrin, that is the, the high court of the Jews, the Supreme Court of the Jews, when they saw the courage of Peter, John, Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished. And they took note that these men had been with Jesus. It's so easy for us. And the, and the church and the problems of the church kind of pile up on us and pile up on us. And sometimes they pile up on those people who are ministers. And who would know that better than I would as old as I am? To be, I've been around enough ministers and enough elders, enough deacons to know that this is not just child's play. It's so... It's a lot more difficult, and the elders sometimes have so much more on them than you could ever realize, things that they can't even talk about. And because they have to go through these sort of things, it's so easy for them to become discouraged in, in well-doing, pray for them. We do not want this to happen. We want, want them to, to keep on keeping on. Paul told the young evangelist Timothy, who no doubt was a great and powerful young man, he says, he had to tell him, though, that God has not given us a spirit of fear of timidity or timidity, but the spirit of power and love and self-discipline. This is no time to be timid. This is no time to be fearful. We have to have this boldness about us. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. I remember reading in a book a number of years ago, back when I was a young man, I don't even think I owned the book. It was probably, but I don't even remember the source. It's way too, too far back. About this fellow who was warning people about people within the Church of Christ. He says, you've got to watch these people when they're talking to you. When You'll know. You'll know when they've got a point on, uh, ready to, to pounce on you with a passage that they, they pr they'll be able to prove their point. He says, you look out for that Campbell-like grin. I thought, how rude for him to write about uh, us like that. But I thought to myself at that time, and I think to myself now, sometimes maybe we have had an arrogancy about us. When I talk about the boldness that I'm discussing here, I'm not talking about a peacock routine up here. I hope I don't look that, I hope I haven't come off like that. But I'm quite sure there have been times that you, that you said Hugh was at his peacock best today or something. That's the worst thing you can say about me, to just get up here and act, act like that. But what's the difference between being bold and being arrogant? 
there is a major difference between the two, and you can see it pictorially right here. This guy right here, he's arrogant. That's Goliath. This is little David. Little David has confidence. What is the difference between the two? There's a major difference between the two. Arrogance is when you say to yourself, like, like Goliath did, he swears by his God and swears at our God. And that he goes out there in arrogance and, and, and as if I'm powerful. Who in the world do you think you are? Am I a dog that you would come out and, and, and treat, and, you know, try to use those kind of things on me as if that's all I am, not even a, a, a man? He's so arrogant because he's only thinking about himself and his own power and about how, how great I am. He never sang How Great Thou Art, but he probably sung a lot of tunes that said How Great I Am. But David, not so. David, this little character in you, that he was short, red-headed, I think is the way they've described it as, as ruddy, if that's what that means, and not anything. He was handsome. The, the Bible does tell us that much. But not anything that you'd be afraid of. But he knew that if God wanted that giant dead, that giant was going to be dead. And so he went out there in the name of God, and that giant came down. David didn't even have anything to take his head off. He had to use the giant's own, own sword to take his head off, you'll remember. But he knew that God was with him. That's the difference. That's the difference. There's nothing the matter with being bold, but there's everything the matter with being arrogant. Sometimes it's hard to tell which one you are. You have to watch yourself real close. Preachers have to watch themselves real close because they'll find out that they're being more arrogant than they are being bold. But God wants us to go out there and look our enemy in the eye so that after we stood before the Supreme Court, like Peter and John stood before the Supreme Court of their day, after that's all over, and suddenly they find themselves, the Supreme Court, all by themselves, they, they say, you know, there for a while, I got a little confused. I didn't know if we were on trial or if they were on trial. I mean, they don't, they don't seem to be intimidated by us in any way. There's no problem. Whatever you decide to do, we're just going to do what God tells us to do. That's boldness. When you focus on God, whether God decides to save you or take you home early, you're still going to just focus on Him and what He wants us to do. That's how we stand firm. So here's the three things for you really quickly again. They say, tell, it, tell them what you told them and then tell them and then now you tell them what you, or tell them what you're going to tell them and then tell them and then tell them what you told them. Here we're telling you what we just told you. We've just told you, be consistent, be united, be bold. Can you see in your mind's eye that Roman soldier that you need to be like? that you go out there and you're consistent. He, does, he doesn't go out there just running his mouth, talking the talk. He's ready to back it up. With us, that's the gospel of peace, not, not war, but peace. Are you ready to be united? Are you going to lock hands with God's people? Or if when we get together on Wednesday nights, you'll just forget all about it. You won't be here. What, where, where are you going to be? What are you going to be doing that's more important? Now, don't get, don't get me wrong. I can't, I'll, I'll argue you might not need to be here Wednesday night. There might be another thing that you could do that's more important but not every Wednesday night. And I know it's not commanded. I know it's not commanded. But it's going to make the difference in whether or not your children, some people that you love, go to heaven or go to hell as to whether or not you unite with God's people 
or you do not unite. Now, I can argue, you know, as a, as a lawyer in the scriptures that you don't got to do it. Just go to church on Sunday morning. But that's, and, and I'd be right. But still, you're not going to do as much good unless you say to yourself, you know, every chance I get, I'm going to do my, do my best to stand up for the Lord, be united with God's people so that I can build people up. You see, see the difference? Huge, huge difference. Thirdly, we, and just think about that Roman soldier as he goes out there. Can you imagine he's going to get anywhere if he's not going to unite with the rest of them? He's going to decide to go off in the corner and do his own thing. That's not going to work very good. It's not going to work very good. And the boldness, we have to be a people who are bold. That Roman soldier, if he gets out on, their, on the field and, and decides that he's going to be timid instead of bold, and, and the, everybody who looks at him says, I can read it in his face, he knows you're going to just build up the other side unless you have this boldness that comes from focusing on the Lord Jesus Christ that we know is on our side. You say to yourself, why in the world would I want to go out with a slingshot and face the Goliaths of my world? Why would I want to do that? That's crazy. That's just crazy. Paul knew that that's the kind of way that people think, and so he says, well, we do it for the Lord. That's why we do it. He, he ends in Philippians 1.19 in our text today by saying, It's been granted to you that you that for the sake of Christ you should suffer for the sake of Christ, for His sake. And so we, we go through this not because it's going to be easy. This is no health or wealth gospel where if you decide you'll give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, everything's going to be wonderful and happy, happy, happy. There'll be some bad times in your life, no doubt. But do it anyway. Why? For the sake of the Lord. But Peter says, I know another reason that Paul didn't mention there. Do it for your children. Repent and be baptized, Peter said on the day of Pentecost. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling. And the promise is to you and to your children. To all those who are far off, do it for your children. Never let that line be broken. I don't care how huge that big devil looks that's coming at you. If God's on your side and you hang on for dear life, he will not get past you because God will be with you.